open to Acts chapter 2 uh, before we, we jump into this. Um, I want to show you a, a picture here this morning. This is a, a famous uh, Norman Rockwell painting. I think many of you have seen this before. It's kind of a fun and ironic painting. Um, I like Norman Rockwell. I know if you're kind of a art connoisseur, like kind of the art snobs don't like Norman Rockwell, but I, I, I like his stuff. Here's the irony of the painting. Here's a guy who is painting a picture of a guy painting a picture. It's called triple self-portrait because you've got the back of his head and the reflection in the mirror and in the painting that he is drawing. Um, it's a fun picture, a picture of a guy painting a painting. Uh, there's, there's richness in that, even on the, the, the painting itself. There are various famous self-portraits from Albrecht Durer and other artists that append to the canvas um, as Rockwell presents this. There's something fun about this. Well, today I want to do something similar. Um, I want to preach today about preaching. Uh, it's sort of like painting a painting of a guy painting or singing a song about singing. But I want to preach today about preaching. I want to give you guys sort of my job description so you can hold me accountable to it. To know what is it that the preacher is meant to be doing and what does it mean to preach You know, it's quite easy, especially if you grew up going to church, to kind of assume, I know what preaching is because I know what it sounds like when I hear it. It's when a guy stands behind a big, hideous wooden pulpit and starts yelling and waving his arms around. And we have this sort of idea that, well, teaching is sort of like this, and preaching is like this, and sharing is like that. But I wonder how many of our assumed understandings of what preaching is, whether that's positive or negative, Maybe you have a sort of a negative idea of preaching. Some guy gets up and yells and guilt trips you for an hour and a half, and then we all kind of go home and feel bad about ourselves. Um, whatever our understandings of preaching are, I want us to set aside maybe the, the ideas that we have, and I want us to go to this chapter, Acts chapter 2, which is kind of the, it is in fact the very first sermon preached in the New Covenant age by the Apostle Peter to see here's a model for what preaching is, and maybe it'll tell us some things that preaching is not. Try and set aside your experiences of like, well, I've heard hundreds of sermons. I know preaching when I hear it. Maybe set aside your experiences, your assumptions, and let's seek to define it from Scripture. Preaching is a scriptural idea. Uh, You can do a word study to see all the different words that are used preaching, someone who is declaring spiritual truth in an authoritative kind of way. But let's define it today from Scripture, not from our experience of having grown up in the church, not from our cultural assumptions of what it might be, not from our intuitions or emotions or or any of those other things. So what is preaching? Why is it that we take the bulk of our service? I usually preach close to an hour just for those who are visiting today. By the way, if you're visiting, thanks so much for being with us today at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. We're, We're honored to have you here with us. You are welcome. We love having visitors. We have an open door policy. Anyone who wants to come can come. We want people to come and hear the word of God. But what is preaching? Why do we do it? How should it be done? And so I want to take Acts chapter 2 and see this model that we get of preaching from the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. So let's just start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read a lot of scripture here this morning uh, so we can sort of root our thoughts in the, in the written word of God. Beginning in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Okay, we last left the apostles. Jesus ascended to heaven. Is uh, t- now 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after, after uh, Passover. So the day of Pentecost is one of the Jewish festivals. It's a day of celebration, a day of joy. It's fully come, it has arrived. The day uh, of fulfillment has come. There's, there's a load of theological meaning in that fully come. All in one accord in one place. They've been the, the apostles and the 120 believers in Jesus in Jerusalem have been gathering every day, praying and longing for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There's language from the Old Testament. There's some Old Testament backdrop that when the tabernacle was completed, when the tabernacle, uh, the temple was completed under Solomon, the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of Yahweh filled that house. Now the idea is to say the house, the temple is no longer on Temple Mount. It's no longer a tent. It's no longer a place. It's God's people. It's believers in Jesus. They are now the temple. The corporate church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. There appeared on, uh, unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. They begin speaking languages they had never heard or never learned before. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. So it's a festival where all Jewish men were required to come. So there's people from all over the world, and it gets spelled out here, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, okay, this is kind of crazy, 120 people who have just been speaking Aramaic or Hebrew all of a sudden are speaking languages they've never heard, and people are like, there's something crazy going on down here. You need to come see it. The multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. This is what the gift of tongues is, people having the ability to speak a known human language that they've never learned before. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? We, we hear that southern accent kind of in the way they're speaking. That's the sense. Like, they're Galileans. These are not uh, multilingual individuals who spent years at the language academy learning these languages. This is a divine gift. And here we, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia. Okay, so that's where the people of Israel had been taken to exile. There's a little note that the exile is being reversed here. Um, And in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome and Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues Our languages, our dialect, that's the the Greek word, the wonderful works of God. Okay, so the Tower of Babel, God had divided humanity by language, and they had been scattered. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. That's that's the language that's sort of being implied here is the exile, that's now being reversed as God calls his people back to Jesus. The Tower of Babel, where God judged and divided humanity into different language and ethnic groups, it's now being reversed in the Church of Jesus Christ Ethnicity and language is no longer what defines us. It is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. They're drunk. They've, They've had a little too much too early in the day, and they're babbling on incoherently. So now we get the sermon begins in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, so they're up. They're probably at this point in the temple courts. They've probably migrated from the upper room to the temple courts, though we don't know where he is, said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Listen up. I'm about to say something authoritatively and declare God's truth to you. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning, guys. A little too early to, be, to already be drunk. But... This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is not guys getting drunk. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. So he goes now to Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Okay, not just Israel, but all nations. There's something global about this. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. It does not matter age, whether young or old. God's Spirit is going to come on all. We find out later on who believe in Jesus. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, so both male and female, I will pour out on those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall declare my word. That's literally what's going on. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, just weeks before the sun had been blotted out as Jesus hung between heaven and earth and bore the wrath of God for our sins. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, this is going to go out to all nations. Babel is going to be reversed. So Peter quotes Joel. He says this is being fulfilled. Verse 22, here's how it's fulfilled. Ye men of Israel, hear my words. Hear my words. Jesus of Nazareth. So now he gets into the sermon itself. First word of the sermon is Jesus. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He's like, you guys know about the miracles of Jesus. It proved that he's anointed and empowered by God. He's not some charlatan, but he is God approved. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It says, God determined before the foundation of the world every single detail that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. God predestined and ordained that Judas would betray him, that the Jews would reject him, that the Romans would crucify him. Every decision that's involved by every individual involved was pre-planned by God. So, well, that 
takes away human responsibility. A bunch of robots. No, he says, you, by wicked hands, are crucified and slain. The Bible has these two truths on parallel tracks, that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, and we are absolutely responsible for the choices we make. Put those both together in one verse. But here's the big point. He's been crucified, whom God hath raised up, verse 24, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden by it. It's not possible for Jesus to stay dead. It's not possible for the God of life to remain in the grave. For David, now he's going to back up. Okay, what's the, what's the basis for this? Is, is Peter just making this stuff up? For David speaketh concerning him. He's quoting from Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither shalt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made, me, made known to me the way of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. You can read Psalm 16 to get the sense of, uh, of what David is saying. In Psalm 16, is David saying, God, you're going to extend and protect and sustain my life. But in the fulfillment, it's about Jesus. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, okay, the great king of the Old Testament, the sweet psalmist of Israel, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. He's like, this ultimately was not true of David. David kicks the bucket like everyone else. David died. He's in a tomb. He didn't rise from the dead. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. We have 2 Samuel 7, where God tells David that one of your offspring, one of your descendants, will reign forever. So David knew that. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. This really wasn't about David. This is about Jesus. That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Just a quick note, that word hell is the idea of the grave. We don't get from this the, 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 the wrong idea that Jesus went to hell, as has sort of been perpetuated by the translation of the Apostles' Creed, that he went to hell and rose again. The idea is that Jesus was in the grave for three days, and Jesus rose again. He's in the grave... And he's been risen. So verse 32, this Jesus, the same one who did the miracles, the same one who you crucified, the same one who was in the grave, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. That should set off some alarm bells from last week at Acts 1.8. You'll be witnesses. The 11, they're standing up where everybody can see them. It's not just Peter saying, I saw this. I'm just one crazy guy who thought I saw some guy rise from the dead. There's 11 of us up here who have seen and can attest to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, they saw the ascension as well, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth us, he has poured this out, whereof ye now see and hear. So Jesus has been exalted, he's at the Father's right hand, and the Father and the Son from the Father and Son precedes the Holy Spirit. He's been poured out on his people. The exalted Christ has now sent the gift of the Spirit. That's what he is saying. It's proof that he is king. For David, we now get another quote from Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1, is not ascended into heavens, in the heavens, but, okay, again, this is not about David. It can't be about David because David never ascended. He saith himself, the Lord, Yahweh, said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. It's like God can see this one who would be his equal, who is also the Messiah, who sits at his right hand, who has conquered and won the victory. Therefore, Here's the takeaway. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, this is probably the Cliff Notes version. He probably went longer than that. But Dr. Luke records this for us. Jesus, who you crucified, has been made Lord. He's been exalted. And Christ, he's king. And the proof of this is that the Holy Spirit has been given to the people of God. What an incredible sermon. I think verse 36 is pretty much encapsulates the whole point of it. Uh, now, verse 37, we get the response. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were convicted. You crucified the Messiah. Think about it. You're these people who just weeks before were like, hey, crucify him, kill him. And then Peter's like, you realize that guy you killed is the Messiah, the promised one that you've long awaited. They're pricked in the heart. They're convicted of their sin. They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Like, we have royally messed up. We have sinned. We have rebelled. What do we do to make this right? 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's huge to say in the name of Jesus, to say this is authorized by him. It is under his authority, under his rule. And you, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you. Like the people standing here in this generation, this promise, if you repent and you believe in Jesus, signify that in baptism, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and to your children. It's not just to here and now, but it is also for future generations. By the way, this does not teach that the promise of the Holy Spirit and salvation is sort of passed genetically, that if mom's a Christian, I'm a Christian. Um, But to say that this extends to all generations... And to all who are afar off, that's language from the book of Isaiah to say not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Peter would have a little bit of difficulty later on with that. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, he did testify and exhort. So he's warning and he is pleading, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word. So notice the sequence. They received the word, were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. A lot of scripture there and just trying to give a bit of a running commentary so we get what this is about. The point of the sermon is that the exalted Christ has sent the Holy Spirit and that Israel and the nations, if anyone will repent and believe in Jesus, they too will have their sins forgiven and will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's no indication here that everyone who received the gift of the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues or that that was expected, much less required. Uh, the giving, the speaking in tongues was unique for the, to indicate that the, the age of the Spirit had come, but not to say that that's normative or expected or required. Now, here's where I want to go this morning is from this, this incredible sermon. Say, what should Christian preaching look like? What is preaching? So I want to walk through some features of apostolic preaching because the apostles are regarded as the foundation of the church in Ephesians chapter 2. They set the trajectory. How they preached really gives us the model for how we should preach. Uh, and, and, and the way they set things up with the local church in the book of Acts really sets the trajectory for the rest of the church age. So what are the features of, Paul, uh, of Peter's preaching? And by the way, we could go to any one of the sermons in the book of Acts and see this. I laid it all out in my study and realized we don't have time on one Sunday morning to go through every sermon in the book of Acts. But if you'd like to see that, I'm more than happy to show that to you. First feature is that it was authoritative. We get Peter standing up in verse 14. He's not sort of sitting back in a lounge chair having a discussion. He is standing up authoritatively heralding and declaring the word of God. Now, this is the same guy who just weeks before was sort of scared of his own shadow, who denies Jesus three times. But here he is now boldly and authoritatively putting this message, declaring this message, saying to the very people who crucified Jesus, you killed your Messiah, you must repent. I mean, the resurrection has changed Peter. The gift of the Holy Spirit has transformed him. Now, this address runs all the way through verse 36. And you will notice it's not a dialogue. There's some people today say, you know, the 21st century is really a time where people like to have, we'll sit around in a circle, we'll kind of just talk about stuff. There's a place for fellowship. There's a place for edification and one anothering. We're going to talk about that next week. But there is also a place for the authoritative declaration of the word of God. I made a little bit of a snide comment earlier in my message about, you know, what pulpits look like. But there is something that is said about the word of God in the church of Jesus Christ, having a central place even in the architecture. Back in the Middle Ages, before the Reformation, there would not have been a pulpit in a church. The center of the church would have been the altar, because what was regarded at that time as the central act of worship was the re-crucifixion of Jesus in the Mass. The Reformation comes along, and the Reformers are like, no, the Word of God is central. And Jesus is not re-crucified. He died once for sins. And celebrating communion is not a stone altar, but it's a wooden table where we fellowship. And the pulpit was moved to the center of the church to say, what is central in the life of the church is the heralding of the word of God. Apostolic preaching is authoritative. So we get Peter here, not just merely offering vague generalities or mawkish sentiments, but giving theological and spiritual realities declared with the authority of heaven. The thing that one of the striking features of the sermon is his boldness. It's boldness. So we get him saying these direct address, ye men of Judea. He's not just sort of speaking in third person like an academic reading a paper at a conference. 
But he's speaking to them. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Pretty authoritative. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you. And then verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Now that doesn't come across as clearly in the Greek. That is an imperative. You must know. Come to believe these things to be true. And then verse 38, repent. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty offensive, authoritative word to say the way you are living and thinking is wrong and it needs to change. And uh, you, can almost, you can almost picture the response like a Greta Thunberg, how dare you? This is authoritative and confrontational. So what is preaching? Preaching is an authoritative declaration of the word of God. It's authoritative. Now, you might say, yeah, but this is Peter preaching to people who are unconverted. In the gathering of the church, we're all brothers. We're all equals. We don't need someone to come up here and just declare the word. After all, we, we all have the spirit of God. We're all kings and priests. And I would say amen to all of that. But the fact still remains that in Ephesians 4, God has given to the church pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers who are meant to, to, to declare and to teach the word. Preaching is not just outside the church to call people to believe in Jesus, but it's also the means by which the church is built. In Acts 11, verse 26, Paul goes to Antioch to a gathering of Christians, this beautiful church. And it says that he, when he had found, you know, Barnabas went to Tarsus for to seek Paul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people. Over a few chapters in Acts 15, after they go on their first missionary journey, verse 35, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching. That word there is euangelizomai, the preaching of the gospel, preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. We can build a very clear case to say preaching is not just to the lost, it's also for the saved. It's not just the way that people come into the kingdom and trust in Jesus. It is the way that the church is built and believers grow. Colossians 1 verse 28, Paul is saying, my mission is to bring Christians to maturity until the day of Christ. And he says, him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, teaching every man, and warning every man. In other words, teaching is part of preaching. There's ex explaining even as there is heralding. But my point here is it's not just day of Pentecost, Peter preaching at a crusade, a Billy Graham filling a stadium kind of setting, but it's what should happen week in and week out when the church gathers. Paul writing to Timothy, who's in the context of organizing a church in Ephesus, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. Like, this is what the church of Jesus Christ needs, is for the word to be preached. He tells the Ephesians el Ephesian elders, feed the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. Preaching is not just for the lost, it is for the saved. It forms the church and it feeds the church. And it is part of our regular worship. Now, why is it authoritative? It's not authoritative because the preacher is authoritative. I need to make this very, very clear. Sometimes there's this idea that comes along where, oh, there's the preacher. And he's God's man, and he's the Lord's anointed, and we shouldn't question him. Or the pastor has some kind of pastoral authority. The authority, beloved, is not the preacher, but it is the word of God. The, the, the authority is not the messenger, but is the message. I'll go so far as to say this. You are under no obligation whatsoever to do anything that Sam Sinclair tells you to do. You are under eternal obligation to do whatever the word of God says for you to do. And so I have, it is incumbent upon me as a preacher to make sure that what I am declaring is what the word actually says is a terrifyingly dangerous thing if you read the Old Testament for a preacher to say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken, to get the message right from the word. So preaching is to be authoritative because the message is authoritative. We could do a word study of how this word preaching is used in Acts. We just don't have time for that. But preaching definitionally is the authoritative declaration of the word of God. Here's what the implication is. If this is God speaking, it means that when the preaching of the word happens, God speaks. And guess what? When God speaks, we should listen. And not just listen and like, mm, this is interesting, there'll be a quiz next week. Or this will be kind of an interesting thing to tweet out to my followers. But listen so as to bring our lives into conformity with the word of God. One day we will all stand before God. I, I will stand before God and give an account for every sermon I've ever preached. Why James says, don't be many teachers. Don't you receive a greater condemnation. But you will also give account for every sermon you have heard. 
Think of the sermons that have touched on something in your life that wasn't what it ought to be, and then you walked out of the church and were like, "Mm, I'm going to ignore that. Think of the messages that have been preached calling you, begging you to repent and believe in Jesus, and you you know in your heart you're not a believer in Jesus. You know that you're a hypocrite, a fraud, a fake. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's a seriousness to this. One day we'll give account to God. So the question is, are you obeying what God is saying? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Don't reject, don't resist the voice of God in the preached word. But let me give you a second feature of apostolic preaching and the kind of preaching we should have here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. It should be authoritative, not that you have a domineering that is is very different than saying have a domineering and loud pastor, but an authoritative message where the preacher is subject to that message and the church is subject to the word of God. But the second feature that flows really out of the first one is that that apostolic preaching was expositional. Uh, Expositional, expository, that is to say that the basis of it is the word of God. The content of it is the word of God. What is really stunning to me is from Peter's sermon, the first thing out of his mouth after he's like, no, guys, we're not drunk, is the announcement of his text. He reads his sermon text, which is Joel 2, uh, a passage that at first glance we'd be like, oh, that's about the end times. And he's like, no, this is about right now. This is about the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out, and it's happening now. And it might feel at first glance that he reads the text, then goes on and ignores it, like whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord. It actually, the rest of the sermon is him explaining this text, is saying, what did God really mean when he spoke these words through Joel? You read the book of Joel, it's all, at first glance, it's about like a locust plague, and then it seems to be about the end times, and it's about repentance. You're like, what is this? What Peter is saying is that the end times have begun. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus has begun the last days. We are living in the last days, and we have been since the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And the sign that the end times have begun, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this end times gift of God to his people as the gospel goes out to all nations. Uh, We need to expand our understanding of end times. It's not just seven years, return of Jesus, millennial kingdom, but it's the whole time from the first to the second coming of Jesus. But Peter is saying, here's this text, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now notice how how he expands on that part at the end of the passage. His promises for you, verse 39, to your children and uh, those who are far off, even as many as the Lord himself shall call. Here's the amazing thing. He takes this and kind of turns it on its head. Yes, you must call on the name of the Lord, but to call on the name of the Lord, the Lord must call on you. Uh, the Lord is the one who does the calling, and we in response call upon him in repentance and faith. But here's my point. Peter's sermon is not simply him saying, yeah, guys, we had a really awesome experience, like we saw Jesus, gave us warm and fuzzies. You too should have the same warm, fuzzy experience. He's saying, no, concretely, God has made promises in Joel and in Psalm 16 and in Psalm 110, verse 1, and Jesus has fulfilled those promises. He's not trying to make these texts. He's not shoehorning these texts to make them mean what he wants them. He's not taking these passages and yanking them out of context and being like, yeah, they're really about Jesus saying this is what God actually intended all along. He's not just quoting Joel and then ignoring it. He's not just pulling Psalms out to say, oh, this kind of supports my point. He's not just quoting Scripture. He's not just using Scripture. No, he is explaining Scripture. He is taking the riches of Scripture and exposing them to view before his hearers. That's where we get the idea of expository preaching, preaching that exposes to view the meaning that God intended in his word. God's word is a treasury of heavenly instruction. God's word is a goldmine of eternal truth. And we need to get beyond just sort of raking the dust on the surface, but digging down to get the the nuggets that are really there. Not not trying to sort of plant stuff that's not there, not trying to make connections God didn't intend, but understanding what God said. This is the kind of preaching I believe God honors, preaching whose content and whose basis is the Bible. Now we can go on through sermon after sermon in Acts. In Old Testament truths, that's the scripture they had, by, by the way. There's no New Testament yet at this point. Taking the Old Testament explaining it and showing how it has been fulfilled in Jesus, then calling their hearers to bring their lives into conformity with that new reality. Biblical preaching, beloved, must declare the meaning of God's Word. We don't come to the Word, we don't come to the Scripture with our own ideas and try to read them in. Uh, there's, a, there's a type of preaching that I kind of call launchpad preaching, 
where a preacher reads a text and then 10, 9, 8, and lift off and blasts off, and off he goes into the stratosphere talking about things that have nothing to do with the passage that he started with. I've heard this kind of preaching all the time where someone would go to like some story in the Old Testament and then turn it into an allegory about like why you shouldn't have TVs or something that like, be like, that's got nothing to do with this text. The kind of preaching the apostles did is preaching that says, here's what God means. This is the word of God. This is the voice of God, and we need to obey it. It's what Peter is doing here. So that means the task of the preacher is the preacher must do the hard work of figuring out what God intended when he gave his word. God meant something when he said what he said. And it is possible for us to know what he meant when he said what he said. This is not a book that we just come to. It's not a blank canvas that we come with all of our ideas to read into it. But there is real meaning in the Bible that we are meant to understand. We've got to figure out what the human author intended when he wrote it, what the original audience understood when they heard it. That's hard work. So what is preaching? It's the accurate explanation of God's word. It is the worshipful worshipful celebration of its glories and the authoritative declaration of its demands for us today. It's not just read a verse, here's what the Greek means. Read a verse here, we're just kind of turning it. There are glories in the text of Scripture that we celebrate. That's why this is worship. Hopefully right now you are worshiping as you're like, this is awesome, the riches of God's word. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've given to us. So we call that type of preaching expository preaching. Starts with the text, not with some topic like, hey, today we're going to talk about happiness, and we're going to maybe find a few verses that talk about that. And we start with the text, and the text might talk about happiness, but the word of God sets the agenda, not the preacher, not the desires of the audience, not like we do a survey and find out what everybody wants to talk about, but what God says. We could say that expository preaching is when the God-intended point of the text becomes the point of the sermon. Now, we've got to do some work to bring it over to what it means today. Um, Greet ye one another with a holy kiss. It's going to look different in 2023 than it did in the year 23, unless you want to go to jail. Um, there, 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 we would say, what's the meaning? How does it apply today? And I would even go this far to say, what's the best way to go about doing this? Paul in Acts 20, 28 says, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, like everything God said. I think probably the best way to go about doing that is to take books of the Bible and preach sequentially through them. Now, the Bible does not say thou shalt preach through books of the Bible, but just as a God has inspired his word and all of his word and says all of the church needs all of the word, then we should preach all of the word. And the best way to do that is probably just to move chapter by chapter, section by section through books of the Bible, sometimes with top-level studies like we're doing right now. Sunday nights, we're doing overviews of books of the Bible, sometimes like we, we did in Ephesians where we're going phrase by phrase. There's different speeds you can do this at. But simply staying in a context of moving through, that forces the Bible to set the agenda. So say I'm preaching through the book of Matthew, and I come up to the section on the topic of divorce. That's a tough topic to talk about. But I feel much better as a preacher saying, I didn't pick that topic today because I wanted to pick on someone. That was just the next thing in the text. Or you're going through and you find some things that are really doctrinal and theological to be like, man, people aren't interested in this. Well, it's in the Bible. We're going to talk about it. So what does this mean for us? When we come to listen to sermons, we've got to make sure that they are biblical. Say, is that what God intended? Remember the Bereans, they searched the scriptures to see if the things Paul was saying were actually there. We want to listen with discernment. Say, is this what God has for us? Let me give you a third characteristic of apostolic preaching, and it's this. It's that it is Christian. It's Christian or Christ-centered. We are now, as Peter preaches this, we are now under the, in the age of the new covenant. The giving of the Spirit is the full institution of the new covenant. It is the inauguration of the coming kingdom. It's the onset of the last days. So we are now firmly in Christian territory. We're firmly in new covenant territory. And so Peter doesn't just preach a, here's the Torah and talk about Moses. He talks about how the whole trajectory of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Saying Jesus is the true and the better David. David had these things where he was like, God, you're not going to let me rot in the grave. And 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit down on thy right, right hand. He makes the point explicitly, verse 29. He says, let me speak unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. In other words, those can't possibly be about David. If David's saying, I'm always going to live, can't be about David. He's not been resurrected. Sitting at the Lord's right hand can't be about David. He's not been exalted. They have to be about the one who was resurrected and the one who was ascended, saying, I'm going to look and read the Old Testament through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to look at all of Scripture from the vantage point, from the vista of Mount Calvary. I'm going to look at the Old Testament not just as a collection of laws and stories and accounts, but as the preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at every prophecy and prediction, not just in terms of what the promise was, but in the greater fulfillment. Here's something you find out that God does. When, when God fulfills a promise, he doesn't just fulfill it. He super fulfills it. Let me give you an example. God says in Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah. And in that new covenant, I'm going to give them the spirit. I'm going to take away their sins. This will be great. Jesus comes along and he announces the new covenant. And the apostles announced the new covenant. And guess what? If you're a Christian here today, you're part of that new covenant relationship with God. And we're going to enjoy one of the signs of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. But I don't know if any of us or if even a majority of us are members of the house of Judah. God says, here's a promise I'm making with the house of Judah. And then the fulfillment of it, he brings to the nations. God has the prerogative and the right to be more generous in the fulfillment than he is in even the promise. God talks about, here's something, the, the, the suffering servant, it seems like it's Israel, but in the fulfillment we find it's Jesus. The seed of Abraham, you're like, well, it's Isaac, but then you find out again the seed of Abraham is Jesus. Then all of us who believe in Jesus are also regarded as sons of Abraham. It's just stunning the extravagance of how God fulfills his word and how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So that means Christian preaching is preaching that must come from the vantage point of the finished work of Jesus. So when we go back and look at the Old Testament, you're like, hey, David killed Goliath. We should be like David and take on the giants of our lives. How does the fulfillment of Jesus as the son of David change the way I read that? How do I understand that in the big flow that ultimately the point of David is not David, the point of David is Jesus? It changes me from reading the Bible as sort of a collection of stories. It's going to be really easy for those who teach children to kind of be like, here's a story, here's a moral, like, let's try this. And read the stories in light of the story, how they all link together, and all these roads lead to the cross, all these roads lead to Calvary. Second Corinthians says that in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. He's the fulfillment of every promise. He is the theme of the story. He is the hero of the saga. In fact, according to Luke 24, Jesus has a little Bible study with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he takes them back to Moses and the prophets and says how all these things had to be fulfilled in him. In John 5, 39, he says, Search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. So when I say Christian preaching, we're saying preaching that recognizes the reality of who Jesus is. I'll be honest, I've heard plenty of preaching in Christian churches, where those sermons were so were nothing more than moral harangues. Try harder, do more, do more, try harder. You're, you're, here's four steps for this, and, and, and not rooting it in the fact that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. We need to read the Bible in a way that sees Jesus as the fulfillment. Now, that doesn't mean you find Jesus in every red thread or under every rug of the tabernacle. But it does mean you read the Old Testament as preparing and anticipating the coming of Jesus. When we read the Old Testament from this side of Calvary, it's like re-watching a crime show after you have come to the end and you're like, oh, that's who did it. And so then you watch it again a second time and there's all of these things, these clues dropped along the way that didn't have any significance the first time through, but now have great meaning. The end of the story informs and interprets the beginning of the story. The New Testament fulfills and even interprets the Old Testament by showing us what the fulfillment looks like. Now, what are the implications of this? If Jesus is the hero of the story, then that means that grace is the message of the story. Like, this is huge. Christianity is not about human achievement. It's not about, look at how good David did. Let's try to emulate that. 
But it's like, no, actually David needs a redeemer. Even the monarchy established by God in the Old Testament ends in failure. The priesthood ends in disaster. The prophets end in silence. We need a a prophet who will truly speak the word of God, a priest who will offer a final sacrifice, a king who will reign forever and not mess up and not be oppressive and not rebel against God. And all of those are found in Jesus. Christianity is not about human achievement, but divine grace. When we recognize that, there are real implications for you as a Christian here today. The mechanisms that you're employing to try to justify yourself before other people are just totally unnecessary. You're not a Christian. Your attempts to try to look good to God are just a complete and utter waste of time. We cannot justify ourselves. We need God to justify us. We see these things in light of grace. We see our attempts at good works to be nothing more than the fig leaf aprons that they really are. When we recognize that God's grace is what forgives us, I can quit trying to minimize my sin Confess it as it really is because I'm forgiven, not on the basis of me convincing God that my sin's not a big deal. He already knows how big of a deal it is, and he sent Jesus to the cross for it. We can confess our sin in all of its ugliness because the gospel pardons our sin fully, past, present, and future. Every sin. We can stop pretending that we have perfect families, that we have perfect lives, that we have perfect relationships. We can take the mask off. We can stop the silly charades. We can be real with each other and enjoy real fellowship with each other. We're going to go there next week. Because the gospel calls us into the light of God's grace because of the finished work of Jesus, we can stop slinking in the shadows of secrecy and walk in light as he is in the light. Because of grace, we can be honest with our spouses about our failures, our weaknesses, and our sins. The gospel can free us. Because the Bible is all about Jesus, and the message of the Bible is all about the gospel. It frees us from living in the fear of man under the constant, uh uh-oh, who's going to find out that I really don't have it all together? It frees us from looking to our achievements to justify us, from requiring others to make us feel like we're right. It frees us from slavery to people's opinions. It frees us from the shackles of shame for wrongs that we have done in the past. It frees us from the crippling power of guilt. It frees us from the terror of judgment. It frees us from the idolatrous pursuit of self-glorification. Like all of that, that's the message of the entire Bible, not just John 3.16. This is what the whole Bible is about. What God has done for us in Christ to redeem us and to reconcile us and how we ought to live a life of gratitude as a response. Which brings me to a fourth feature of apostolic preaching. And remember, preaching both in the church and outside of the church is evangelistic. That's the fourth characteristic. Evangelistic, that word evangel comes from EU, means you get the word euphoria, good, evangel, news. It's good news that is declared. Good news from God that our sins have been paid for by Jesus. This is a joyful news. The best news that could ever be proclaimed is that sins can be forgiven. And they have been through Christ. A couple of features here. We, we, we noted, reading in verse 23, they says, You, by wicked hands, have crucified and slain him. There is a full accounting of our responsibility, of our sin and our guilt before God. When the apostles preached the good news, they didn't just say, Jesus died, would you believe in Jesus? They would lay out the sin and the guilt of those hearing them. By the way, they didn't blame the whole nation of Israel for the crucifixion of Jesus. They could say, you guys, because they're talking to the ones who actually did it. Later on, when Peter is preaching uh, to other Jewish people, and Paul is preaching to other Jewish people, they don't lay the blame at their feet as if, as if there's some kind of ethnic solidarity that they're guilty for other people's sins. Um, I just mention that because so much anti-Semitism buys into the false notion that the Jews as a whole nation killed Jesus. No, it's the ones who actually did it who killed Jesus. When Paul is preaching to Greeks... In Athens, he tells them that, they, that there's coming a day of judgment, and they need to repent. So when we're talking about the evangelistic preaching, it is a full declaration of man's sin, your lostness, my lostness, our hopelessness without Jesus. Another feature of this evangelistic preaching is the apostles always talked about the saving significance of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus I think what's really fascinating here is Peter doesn't spend all of his time talking about the death of Jesus. He spends all of his time talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is central in the preaching of the gospel for the apostles. 
for some reason in modern preaching, the resurrection, just like, hey, Jesus died for you, he loves you, and oh yeah, he also rose again. For the apostles, the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is absolutely essential because, number one, it proves that he's really the Son of God, and number two, it proves that the sacrifice on the cross has been fully accepted by God. So it's got saving significance. But what Peter leans into here at the end of his message is that to receive these benefits, people must repent. They heard this, they're convicted. By the way, sometimes people hear this exact same message, and there's another phrase that Luke uses. They're cut to the heart, and they become angry. For some people, the same message will provoke repentance. For other people, provoke anger. Like, what's the difference? Like the mysterious working of God in their, in their hearts. So they say, what shall we do? What does Peter say? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He says, repent and be baptized. Turn away. Repentance is a word that doesn't, isn't spoken for many evangelical pulpits today because it implies that I am wrong. It implies that my life is not what it ought to be. It implies that I am a sinner who's guilty in the eyes of a holy God. And it implies that to be saved, that's got to change. The word repent is to have a change of mind. Your mind that once loved sin must turn from that sin and turn to Christ. Sometimes the response to apostolic preaching is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, you only have to believe. Repentance doesn't need to be there. Paul puts them both together in Acts 20, 21. He says, I preach to you repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that these two go together. They're like two sides of one coin. So when the apostles mention believe... They're also implying that you must repent, turn from sin. And when they say repent, they're implying saving repentance means you put your trust totally in Jesus. Two sides of one coin, you must turn tails on your sin and head to Jesus in complete and to utter faith. Now, what about baptism? What about baptism? If Peter meant that baptism was required to be saved, we would see baptism showing up in all the other places where conversion is talked about. Baptism is a sign, right? It's a sign. He talked about earlier in the book of Acts, you've been baptized with water, you're now baptized by the Holy Spirit. This baptism in water is the sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's the sign that your sins have been washed away. Um, Elsewhere in the book of Acts, we see that faith always precedes baptism. So when when Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9, it says this, Verses 17 and 18, Ananias comes and says, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to thee on the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. So he receives his sight, and then he's baptized. He's converted, and then he is baptized. In Acts 2.41, they receive the word, and then they're baptized. What does this mean? Baptism is a sign that points to a greater reality. What is the reality it's pointing to is a heart that's trusting in Jesus. Now, the New Testament knows nothing of people who believed in Jesus who weren't baptized. It was expected. Everyone who believes in Jesus, well, of course, you tell everyone about it by going into the waters of baptism. So I would just say this. If you're a believer in Jesus here today, you are saved by grace through faith alone. But one of the things that that faith will want to do is declare itself before others. And the way the ordained means that God has given to us is through the waters of baptism, where we profess to the church and to the world that we belong to Jesus. So sometimes the apostles say, repent. Sometimes believe, those two go together. If you are not a believer in Jesus today, you're not trusting in Jesus only for your salvation. You must turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. And by that, I don't simply mean... Okay, I agree that Jesus died on the cross. I mean wholehearted putting your all onto Jesus. I mean saying forsaking all others and committing yourself wholly unto him so long as you shall live. I mean all of your heart trusting all of Jesus to save you for all of eternity. I mean so much more than simply calling out to him and saying, God, save me, though that may be an appropriate expression of faith. It's not words of a prayer that would save you. It's not even going and talking to someone that saves you. It is calling on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith. And if you have never done that today, if you're sort of hoping today that, 
by just sort of being a nice person or a good human being or a moral churchgoer or being in a service today or drinking some juice and eating a cracker is going to get you to heaven, is going to, 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 to bring about the forgiveness of your sins, I would plead with you to know assuredly that God has made him Lord in Christ, to turn to Jesus with all of your heart. Now, I want to give one final point that's not in your outline. Apostolic preaching was celebratory. It's offered on this feast day where everybody's eating and feasting and having a glorious time celebrating the goodness of God. Later on, there's a pattern that's established in the New Testament church where they gather on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. The day we gather the resurrection of Jesus, like the basis for our hope in life and death, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Every gathering of the church when we worship is to celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. The very word evangelize, good news, preach, is a celebratory word. And notice the result of this in verse 47. The people who believe in Jesus, they're praising God and having favor with the people. The aim of preaching, yes, it's conversion, and the outcome of that is worship. Our preaching is not something different than our worship. No, our our preaching begins in worship, it occurs in worship, and it, it results in worship. In Nehemiah 8, when the law was declared to the people of God, they rejoiced. The joy of the Lord is your strength. is given in the context of them reading and explaining the Bible. Psalm 95 is, oh, come, let us worship, let us bow down. Then two verses later, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. Our hearing of the word of God and humility and submission is an act of worship. So what kind of preaching and teaching must we have at Cloverleaf Baptist Church? It's this kind of preaching. And hopefully today... Painting a picture that's an accurate picture. Painting a picture about painting, preaching a message about preaching. But listen, if our preaching of God's word does not lead to a greater admiration of God, we're missing the point. It's a preaching of the word of God. And what a tragedy it would be for us to be just sort of lost in scripture. This is so cool. And not see the God who wrote it. And not come away from our gatherings with a heart of greater affection for God. Seeing and savoring the glory of God in Christ is revealed on the pages of Scripture. So if preaching is to be authoritative, then we need to listen to it with obedient hearts. If it is expository, biblical, then we need to listen attentively because they are the very words of God that are being explained. If it's Christian, then we listen with expectation and hope that the same Jesus who came the first time is going to come the second time. And in the meantime, he is the answer. He is our hope in everything. If it's evangelistic, we listen in faith and complete reliance on Jesus. 